The options continued to narrow steadily. The terrain was too steep and the ground cover too thick here for skis or snowmobiles, both of which were far better suited to river travel and the surrounding swamps. Someone threw out the idea of a bulldozer, which went nowhere. Weighing heavy on the men's minds was the fact that with every passing day, the chances of another attack increased exponentially, and it was soon agreed that the fastest and surest method for finding this tiger would be to hunt him the same way the Yankoskis had more than a century earlier, on foot with dogs. Such was the nature of this tiger and his operating environment that, even though the people hunting him had access to air and ground support, lethal weapons, radios, maps, and centuries of accumulated hunting experience, they were forced to proceed on the tiger's terms. This wasn't the fault of the hunters. It was because effective predators excel at engineering situations that skew the odds in their favor. And this is what the tiger had managed to do, even though he was injured and, most likely, in unfamiliar territory. That opening quote is from the book The Tiger by John Valiant. It was uh, really, really a great book. I enjoyed it a lot. And the book is about this little sliver of land of Russia that's squeezed between China and the Sea of Japan on the sides and to the south by North Korea. And it's a rural landscape and there's some industry there like logging and maybe some mining, but not a lot. And there's really this subsistence living that the people there go through. And part of living in that environment is living amongst these tigers. But, but the book explains really beautifully how the people have come to live with the tigers, how they've evolved to live with these animals. And, and the way that it works is that if the people leave the tiger alone, they believe the tiger will leave them alone. And, and in the book, John Valiant really makes the case that these tigers are incredible thinkers. They're really smart. They know exactly what they're doing. They're almost calculating animals. And in that opening passage we started with, we heard how the tiger is in a situation where it's at the advantage. It's in this terrain that a tiger can move through really well, but these men don't have any good options. And the time of year that this book takes place in, the, the setting of it is a time of year in the winter when there's not many daylight hours. So on top of that, the tiger has another advantage. And this idea of having a relative advantage comes up again and again when we look at people who have been incredibly successful. Charlie Munger likes to say that Sam Walton is a good person for people to study because the way that he created Walmart wasn't that original, or the original ideas weren't to Walton himself. They were things that he had seen elsewhere. There were other people's ideas that Walton just happened to perfect and to implement well and to tie together. Uh, Munger is often saying that Walton beat up on a bunch of palookas before he went into a major market. So he would, he would pick on these smaller animals, the smaller prey, before he grew to pick on the big guys. Another example of that is the Sierra Nevada Beer Company, which was started um, when craft beers were at their lowest. The craft beer industry had been in a regular decline, thanks in part to Prohibition. But even after Prohibition, it was a time of consolidation and the major brewers started to realize some economies of scale. But in the 70s and 80s, there was this opportunity for craft brewers. And the founder of Sierra Nevada, Ken Grossman, took advantage of that.
A third example from a book I'm currently reading about the great Beanie Baby bubble is Ty Warner, the founder of the Beanie Baby Company. And Warner was an interesting character in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that he did, whether consciously or not, was to choose this market where he didn't have a lot of competition and he didn't have a lot of threats from others. So if you can remember back to the 90s when Beanie Babies were all the rage, you'll remember that they weren't sold at Walmart and they weren't sold at Toys R Us and they weren't sold at any of the big box stores, but they were sold at smaller stores, independent stores, mom and pop stores, stores, Hallmark stores. And the reason was is because Warner could go in there, and especially once Beanie Babies became popular, and he could dictate the terms. He could be the one that had an advantage where they had to pay him up front, and they had to limit their order quantities, and so forth and so on. Having not very good competition, or having competition that you're stronger than, it depends on a couple different things. It depends on your skill level and your competition skill level and also what environment you're in and how that environment weighs on those skills. If you were to set these tiger hunters out in a open field, then as the book points out, they're clearly at the advantage with their coordination and their weaponry and so on and so on. But put the tiger in the woods and they have to track the tiger. And there's this added pressure to find the tiger before the tiger finds another victim. And you have a situation where the tiger's at the advantage. If you're looking for a summer book to read, the tiger, while it's set in the wintertime in Russia, uh, would be an excellent choice. One. I missed last week's podcast in part because I was sick and in part because we got a new puppy. We got a Labradoodle puppy a few weeks ago and for some reason last week a lot of stuff came to a head. And part of what I spent that time doing last week was actually reading this book called Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. And it's an interesting book and I thought I heard about it uh, from the Tim Ferriss podcast. Pryor's premise in the book is that we shape all kinds of behaviors. That's her word for training. And at first, I thought it was just a little nuance where she was making things complicated for the sake of making things complicated. But I'm, I'm glad she did because shaping an animal or shaping a creature or shaping a behavior has a different connotation to it. And if we use the steps that Pryor lays out in her book, she says that it's a better system than some other things. Punishment, for example, rarely works because punishment often happens after the act occurred. Pryor uh, says tongue-in-cheek in the book that maybe if you stole something and your finger immediately fell off after you stole something, then that would be a reinforcement that worked much better. But instead, we reinforce so long after a certain event has incurred that the connection between the event and the punishment isn't always as strong as it could have been. And with positive reinforcement, we can correct that. What's key is this immediate feedback and some kind of reward. And figuring out what kind of reward or what motivates a person requires some amount of empathy. With the puppy that we got, the reward is really easy. The puppy just wants the dog treats that we have uh, at home. And so rewarding the puppy is quite simple, but figuring out for people is hard. We've talked here on the podcast before, and I've written on thewaiterspad.com that people are really complicated when it comes to their motivation. Oftentimes we think people are motivated by money and 
A lot of times they are, but we can also offer other things to people. In a previous podcast, we talked about this extreme empathy where you try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and figure out what motivates them so that you can offer the things that motivate them, especially the things that they really value and you don't care quite so much about. Of course, positive reinforcement isn't the only option, and Pryor goes into that in the book. The title of the book, Don't Shoot the Dog, is one form of how to deal with a situation. If you have a dog that's barking at night, you can get rid of the dog, and that will solve the problem. But that's one end of a spectrum, and there's all these other options we can think of. In the middle of that spectrum is ignoring the behavior and hope that it changes someday, and at the other end is training something new for a certain behavior. Pryor believes that positive reinforcement is is best for this, and that starts with immediate small rewards on a variable schedule, and you want to start with something as small as possible for what you're training. The dog that we got is a Labradoodle, and so she's part poodle and part Labrador Retriever, but the Labrador Retriever portion of her has not been activated yet. (laughs) She doesn't know how to retrieve anything, and I realized this the first day when I took a toy and I threw it and she didn't do anything with it. And uh, it wasn't until a few days later where I'm reading Pryor's book when I realized that just throwing something and expecting her to bring it back, while that might work for some dogs, it doesn't work for this dog. And so I need to back things down and to start as small as possible. After you build on one small behavior, Pryor suggests you add a second small behavior, but as you're working on the second one, you can relax the first one that you had. So with our puppy, we worked on coming when we called her to, and so she was pretty good about running up to us for a while. And then the next thing we worked on was sit, and as we worked on the sit command, we were more relaxed with the come command. And then once she had mastered both of those, we put them together. And I was amazed at how quickly she put coming and sitting together. It was remarkable considering that we had spent so much time on each of those individually, but linking them up took less than a day to do. Once you start to link these commands, Pryor cautions you to expect some regressions. It's kind of a two steps forward, one step back system, and we've seen that with our puppy too. While come and sit have been really uh, easy to do, really easy to shape her into, uh, things like laying down or retrieving, like I mentioned before, have been a lot harder to do. So these actions that we can shape is really a non-linear pattern. We shouldn't expect things to always be up and to the right. Now, Pryor's book is about way more than dogs. It's also about shaping people and shaping other animals. Anyone could get a... a um, a lot out of this book as they deal with the people in their life. I've already started to think about how to implement some of these things when it comes to the things that my daughters do. The hard part is to apply it to your own life. Pryor points out that you have to vary the rewards, and they have to be small rewards, and you have to figure out what a person's motivation is. And while it may be easy to find out what your own motivation is, finding the rewards and the variable schedule for that is a lot harder. I haven't figured out quite how to do that yet, but it's definitely something that I've been thinking about. 2. Mark Andreessen was on the Masters in Business podcast with Barry Ritholtz, and he had a a really nice interview. I enjoyed almost all of it. Andreessen is a great person to interview and to talk to about technology because he's been involved for so many different technology things. He was um, 
developing things at University of Illinois really early on when only universities was were connected. He also uh, contributed to the Netscape browser. He worked for Jim Clark, who's profiled in the Michael Lewis book, uh, The New New Thing. And then after uh, the dot-com crash, Andreessen emerged with the A16 uh, venture capital team, and he teamed up with Ben Horowitz. So Andreessen has really touched on a lot of areas of technology. And so when he talks about the things he remembers, and he tells the stories about his experiences, we can really get a good glimpse into what was happening at the time, because he's been there for so long. One part of his podcast that really stuck out with Ritholtz was when he talked about this idea of the idea maze, and Ritholtz asks what he looks for when he invests in a company, and uh, Andreessen says they only invest in 30 companies out of 2,000 referrals. So that's not even their full deal flow. They only invest in 30 out of the referrals they get from other people. And we see this all the time with people like Brent Bishore or Josh Koppelman that there's not many investments that a company will make. It's a really small percentage, and even those, not all of them succeed. So this idea of picking companies and investing in companies is really hard. And, and Andreessen says that because it's so hard, quote, most of what we're doing is evaluating people, end quote. So the way that they do this is they uh, will interview somebody multiple times, first with a small group and then a larger group, and then eventually before an investment gets made, they'll have everybody on the team uh, sit down and interview with interview someone. And then probably not at that meeting, but another meeting, um, Andreessen said that they'll really red team it, that he'll take one side of an idea and his partner Ben Horowitz will take the other side and they'll argue back and forth. And, and part of the reason they do this is so that nobody feels like they have to team up with one of the bosses. Andreessen is the A in A16Z and Horowitz is the Z in A16Z. So if they are able to take opposite sides of an idea, they can really flesh out an idea and, and see how well it stands up to, to what to the best of what people can throw at them. But but in the meetings, when they're talking to these entrepreneurs, uh, Andreessen says that there's the idea maze problem. And uh, this is what he says about it. Quote, the really good founders have been through the idea maze on their own before they talk to a VC. The popular narrative is that these are eureka moments. That is, that, that these companies have an origin myth uh, for, their, for their founding. And that's not at all how it works. It's an incredibly deep and elaborate process of thinking that leads to these things happening, end quote. So what Andreessen is saying here is that the best companies, the best people that come into his office will have thought through a lot of different problems before. And I didn't pick this up in a podcast that Chris Dixon did uh, sometime in the past, but, but Dixon mentioned that the best founders look at problems like a maze. And I thought what Dixon was saying was that if you gamify it, if you reframe it as something that's an enjoyable challenge to conquer, then you can approach it in a different way, in a more enthusiastic way. But I might have been wrong because maybe the maze is that there's all these twists and turns that you have to figure out. You have to learn how to go through the maze by trial and error. And Andreessen says that the best founders will come into the pitch meetings and they'll have already been through that maze. The best founders will have answers for what about the churn, what about the scaling, what about the legal obstacles. 
Of course, this stuff is really hard to know. Whatever your job is, whatever your career is, you probably know a lot more about it now than you did two years ago, and you'll know even more about it two years from now than you do today. You'll, you'll be further down the maze. But in your job, and what these technology entrepreneurs are doing, is trying to figure things out before you get there, is to try to go through the maze and figure out what the solution to a problem is before you come to it. Louis C.K. has an interesting take on this idea, and he was asked by Charlie Rose when he was filming his show Horace and Pete, which uh, Louis C.K. did in a totally unique way as far as filming television shows goes. And uh, Charlie Rose was asking him, like, like, how can you do all this stuff? How can you write a show? How can you film it? How can you how, 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 how do you know how to cut it? How do you know how to do all of these things? And, and Louis C.K. said it was it was kind of like a merit badge approach where you do one thing and and you get a merit badge for that figuratively, of course. But you do one thing and you get expertise at it and then you know how to do it. And then you do something else. And, and then that's another metaphorical merit badge for you. And I think that's what the entrepreneurs are doing too because another part of the interview, Andreessen says that sometimes people don't succeed on their first try. Sometimes they need to try a startup, fail at a startup, go work for a big company, and then try a startup again because they'll get another merit badge. They'll get the big company merit badge that goes along with their startup merit badge and then they can do the next thing. And so this way of acquiring skills is really interesting. And if it works for Louis C.K. making television shows, and it works for entrepreneurs that are pitching A16Z, it's probably something that you and I can apply to our lives as well. Three. It's always hard to know if something is becoming part of the culture, if we're entering a zeitgeist moment for something, or if you're just getting deeper into something. And the example that's most recent of that is the idea of boring businesses. So it could be the case that this is the availability bias, and boring businesses have always operated at their level of consciousness, and I'm just more aware of it now because I'm paying attention to it, I'm seeing it. But it could be that boring businesses are becoming... Not so boring. Scott Galloway mentioned that some of the richest people that he knows and that he speaks to during his speaking tours operate boring businesses. Brent Bishore talks about boring businesses. The people at Chenmark Capital talk about boring businesses. And a boring business that came across my desk was a case study from 2006 about the Aldi company. If you're unaware, Aldi is a low-cost grocer. It started in Germany. The two brothers that operate the company split it in half, where one took North Germany and one took South Germany, and the company has expanded through Europe and into the United States. Aldi happens to be my favorite place to shop because it just seems so simple. It's like you can get in and out of Aldi, and it doesn't take that long, and you don't pay that much. And part of the reason Aldi is succeeding is because it's a boring business, and there were a few ways that this case study highlighted what makes a boring business. Number one, boring businesses are simple. Aldi only has 700 SKUs compared to Walmart's uh, 15,000 items. 
And having the simple inventory makes reordering easier and it makes restocking the shelves easier and it makes um, the whole process easier from everyone involved. And because it's an easier process, they have standard sizes in their boxes. Aldi is much like Costco in that they don't stock multiple sizes of ketchup and organic and inorganic and so forth and so on, but they only have one or two options for what you want to buy. A third way that they keep it simple is that they have no fancy stores. All these stores are very simple, they're very uh, clean, they're laid out the same way wherever they are. So because Aldi doesn't have to spend this time and energy on store construction and store design, they're able to focus on other things. A second part of what makes a boring business like Aldi is how frugal they are. Aldi pays uh, rent of 2% of total sales, which is below the industry average, and they pay their employees uh, a smaller percentage of sales compared to the industry average. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that they pay their employees less. Aldi employees actually tend to, tend to make more, but there's fewer employees per store, and because they have a simple inventory system, they uh, end up getting paid a little bit more than what their peers do. So because Aldi is a frugal company, they don't have money that they spend on frills, which helps keep them a boring business. The third part of a boring business tends to be quality. Aldi is uh, a company that excessively tests their products. Their uh, inventory goes through a lot of quality checks, and the managers have been known to be on the docks, the loading docks, and inspecting every item that, that will come through and will uh, pass the high Aldi quality standards. And this is true for other boring businesses that we've looked at. It's fun to read about a company like Sierra Nevada that brews beer, but brewing beer is a sexy business. That's something that a lot of people may want to get involved in. And it's a really hard business to succeed in. Ken Grossman's story was one of many trials and tribulations and problems that he had to solve around the way. Ken Grossman uh, now can provide uh, on-site daycare and on-site medical care to his employees, but for the longest time, his employees were making next to nothing. They were making less than the industry wages. And Grossman had to get by on what Scott Galloway calls psychic income. You had to take reward from what you're doing because the financial rewards weren't there. A fourth way to uh, have a boring business is to take care of the relationships that really matter. Aldi pays their employees more, so their employees are more invested. They also have a really good relationship with their suppliers. One person who was interviewed for this case study said, quote, you can set your watches by Aldi's payments, end quote. So they are really good at taking care of the people who provide them with their goods and services. And they also have a decentralized command. We talked about this on previous episodes of the podcast, and it was the subject of the William Thorndike blog posts that got published this week. And a decentralized command really empowers people to take ownership of a situation. And if you have someone that has an ownership feeling about a situation, they tend to act more like an owner. The fifth way that Aldi is a boring business is that they take time to make experiments on things. They try new things out. They're willing to test things. In the book, The Intelligent Fanatics by Sean Idings and Ian Castle, they talked about some of the really excellent 
owner-operators of businesses. And one key trait for them was experimentation. Uh, one CEO said, you know, you can't predict what's going to happen. You just have to be able to adapt to the future as it's going to happen. And one part of adaptation is experimentation. You have to be willing to take risks and try new things because you don't know what's going to happen next. So boring businesses, like I said before, they, they may be getting sexier. This may be a thing that we're going to hear more and more about, or it could not, and you'll just hear it on, on this podcast. But whether or not it becomes popular, it's definitely something worth paying attention to. Four. David Swenson's name came up in a few podcasts recently, too, and mostly from Charlie Ellis, who is an advisor um, to the Yale Endowment, and so he works with Swenson because Swenson is the chief investment operator of the Yale Endowment. And Ellis told Ted Seides in their podcast conversation what it takes to be um, great like Yale and David Swenson. And, and of course, you should expect that this isn't going to work out. There's no checklist or um, set of procedures that is going to be formulaic and get uh, great returns for a situation. Ellis warns about this and he says, quote, take all the different comparative advantages and it's virtually impossible to replicate, end quote. So what he's saying here is that you can do the things that we're about to talk about. And you can do them in the same way that Swenson did, but you're not going to get the synergies from them. You're not going to get the combination of things that come together to make something that's greater than the sum of its parts. But but the reason we're going to spend time on this today is that these ideas can be really helpful to anyone. You can take this checklist of ideas and put it in your own life or your own business or your own blog or your own podcast or your own team and you can create a checklist that's as great as the Swenson checklist. You can have amazing returns in similar ways that Yale has had. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to have, quote, a chief investment officer who is brilliant, end quote. So Ellis says that David Swenson is a really smart guy, and we have to take his word for it. it it's something that I, that I believe. And this is often an overlooked part of what it takes to succeed in something. You have to have what Adam Carolla calls a certain amount of horsepower, Corolla uh, says that some people have an 80 horsepower engine and some people have a 300 horsepower engine upstairs. And depending on how much horsepower you have upstairs is, is going to influence what you're really able to do. It may be true that you have to be brilliant to get returns like David Swenson did at Yale. But for most things in life, just having an average or slightly above average or even slightly below average intelligent is going to serve you just fine. The second thing that Ellis says you need is uh, someone who is exceedingly modest at the helm. Uh, modesty helps other people do their best. This was a key part to David Salem's recent podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And, and in that podcast, David said, quote, You cannot know ex ante the date on which the process they employ today will become obsolete. So you ought to assure yourself the human beings you're dealing with treat money management as a profession and not a business, end quote. So you need somebody who's going to be honest and modest and a hard worker. And you need all of these little intangible things that come together. And part of that is having someone that doesn't have a huge ego involved. Because not only will the ego bring them down once the future changes and their ego doesn't align with it, but they'll also create a situation where other people don't want to do uh, the same work for them. Other people don't want to work as hard. 
Chamath Palihapitiya had to say this, quote, Ego is a terrible way to make decisions. It's a really good thing to have to make ourselves feel valuable and to be confident, but that shouldn't drive our decision making. A third thing that Ellis says is that you need to be rational. My favorite quote on rationality comes from Peter Lynch who said, quote, You can't treat a stock like your grandchild. If the fundamentals slip, you have to say goodbye to it. Remember, the stock does not know that you own it, end quote. It's not always easy to be rational or objective, but, but it's really helpful to see the world as best we can. Eric Maddox, who was a, uh, an interrogator in Iraq, he said this about objectivity, quote, it was important to look at both sides as objectively as I could, end quote. And Maddox is dealing with people who were just trying to shoot him maybe an hour before he interrogated them. So if Eric Maddox can try to take both sides of an issue, to see both sides of a situation, then you and I can try to consider what the opposite side may be thinking, too. Another thing that Ellis says is on the David Swenson checklist is experience. Ellis said, quote, he's been doing it for more than 30 years, end quote. Raj Chetty told Tyler Cowan that it takes preschool teachers only a few years of experience to develop really good pattern recognition skills. On the other end of the spectrum, Warren Buffett said he was reading IBM's uh, annual report for 50 years before he made an investment in it. So we have to build up this... Uh, body of experience, this reservoir of experience. We also have to create relationships. Ellis says that David Swenson has terrific relationships and, quote, if I could ever do something that David found useful, I would do it immediately, end quote. Relationships are a really valuable part of getting people to do things that you ask. The final part that Ted Seides and Charlie Ellis add toward, toward the end of the podcast is that Yale has a great governance structure. The board of directors over the investment committee believes in David Swenson, and so if he has multiple down years uh, consecutively, they aren't going to withdraw their capital. They have people that Ellis says, quote, play well with others, end quote. And they always come to the meetings fully prepared. So I don't know if it's because it's permanent capital, and David Swenson doesn't have to worry about uh, people withdrawing their money, or if it's because of this attitude on the governance structure that trickles down to the investment committee. But there's something about the people that are being in charge, even though they're not directly working on the business on a day-to-day -day basis, but that they show up and that they're prepared and they're ready and that they have a good attitude. There's something valuable to that. Today we looked at five things. The first was how the tigers of Russia can remind us to choose our battles wisely, to pick situations where we have an advantage. We also talked about how we should influence or shape people, and that there's a lot of options for what to do, from shooting the dog to ignoring the dog to using positive reinforcement to train a creature. And we looked at how Mark Andreessen sees the idea maze and why it's so important for entrepreneurs that pitch to him to have gone through that maze on their own before the meeting. We looked at Aldi, a boring business, and why boring businesses can really be awesome. And we ended with a David Swenson checklist. And you cannot be David Swenson, and you cannot earn the returns that Yale has earned under David Swenson, but we can take the ideas from the checklist and apply it into our own lives. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.